Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Have you been able to see the Google Doc with the outline? I did, yes. Okay. Okay. Great. Is there anything you would like to add to it now before we get going, or would you just like to sort of talk off the cuff? Yeah, I think I'm okay with sort of winging it if you okay. don't, if you have no objections. <laughs> no, not at all. To we love to random thoughts and that's great. I'm on board. Love it. You're going to be right at home with us. <laughs> Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. And this week we are joined by special guest expert, Dr. Lindsay Snyder, to talk about Richard III in our th- first 301 episode ever. So Welcome, Lindsay. Yeah. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here for, oh uh, for level three. Yes, oh, yeah. it's going to be amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I, I hope I know enough. <laughs> you know be, just enough. It's going to be enough. great. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you've been listening to us for a while, you might be wondering why you know Lindsay Snyder's name. And it might be because Aubrey and I absolutely gushed over Lindsay's work at the Black Friars Conference last fall. Um, and if you would like to hear all of that gushing all over again, you can revisit our Black Friars Conference recap episode, which is all the way back in season one, episode six. Yeah. So Lindsay is a classically trained actor with degrees from NYU, RADA, and the University of Maryland. She also has a PhD in theater and performance studies. She's based in Washington, D.C. and is the director of access and inclusion for Faction of Fools Theater Company, and she teaches at Gallaudet University. She's also a recent Folger Shakespeare Library Research Fellow, and she's here with us today to talk about her work with Shakespeare, Richard III, and American Sign Language. It's going to be great. So thanks, everybody, so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Yeah. So this is a new thing for us. Things are different at 301 level episodes. This is our very first one, and it might be different next time we do a 301. In fact, it will definitely be different the next time we do a 301. Uh, so 101 episodes give you an overview of the play. 201s explore topics that arise from a close reading that Jess and I do of the text. Uh, And 301s are generally going to be outside ideas, concepts, or lenses applied to a particular text. So this means that because we want 301s to be hyper, hyper focused, we won't be including features like rhetorical device of the week, burbage breaks, or games. No fun. No fun in 301s whatsoever. <laughs> None at all. This is very serious work we do here. <laughs> Extremely serious. No fun. Sorry that we had you on on a no fun week, Lindsay. <laughs> this is going to be just uh, I'm, a terrible I'm, time. I'm devastated. <laughs> but I, I, I have to say that a brilliant way to start a podcast is by having someone who works in a visual medium. So well done to you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Out of the box. It's going to be great. (laughs) Um, So if at 301 episodes, of course, we operate on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with the play. So we don't do a synopsis. Uh, You know, if you're a newbie, you need to brush up, refresh your memory, whatever. Um, We have 101 and 201 episodes of Richard the third. It's season one, episode eight and season two, episode two. So Go get them. Right. right. Uh, and in general, we want to use 301 level episodes to explore just a single aspect of the play under discussion. So this week, Lindsay is here to take us into her experience with the play. Um, we're really excited about that. So <laughs> let's just let's just dive into it. Yeah. Um, all right. So, Lindsay, all the way back in what, January, you had gotten in touch with us uh, and said, some lovely things about some lovely things. Um, and then we said, please come on the podcast. What plays are you interested in? And you had mentioned Richard the third. So mm-hmm. um, can you just start us off with like what you like about this play and sort of your, your history with it? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I can. Um, so my interest in Richard III started in sort of what I think of as, as a pretty standard lens where um, people start with the perspective of Richard as um, disabled, the outside ugliness, quote unquote, equaling the inside vice. Um, and so I started with, with that, with interest in that um, because of some of the work that I did in disability studies uh, and, and working with deaf culture, which isn't necessarily a visible disability, uh, I, I, I got more interested in, well, let's think more about vice and the fact that uh, it can be the perception of the people around you. Disability is what society makes you. It's not what you make yourself. Mm-hmm. Then there were just other facets of the play that I really thought was interesting. I love Richard, which is super inappropriate. But but one of the reasons why I think he is a villain that you love to hate is he's sort of a, a, a rarity in that he lies all the time. But he's my favorite kind of Shakespearean liar. He goes, I am such a good liar, people. Mm-hmm. Look at me. So it's, uh, again, going back to this wall, ev- everyone would look at him as a terrible, horrible person because he has a disfigurement. But he's coming out to his audience, his conscience, his voices in his head, his God, whatever that outside force is, and going, honestly, I am cool AF because... I can do all this stuff. Uh, so I, I really got interested in him as a liar. So that was also that was also something that drew me in. Um, and then thirdly, I would say that the women in this play are very interesting to me. Very yes. interesting to me. Because people often talk about Shakespeare, the strong women of Shakespeare, <laughs> right? And you have the ones that they perceive of as the lead women. Right, the ones that carry the play, the Beatrices, the Kates, and I, and I have great affection for them. But not only do you have this really interesting contrast between whatever Leanne is doing and Margaret with all her things, I like the character that people tend to cut, which is Richard's mother. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. I, I find her s- super fascinating that she just, she knows where all the buttons are. And I think there's a reason why. Shakespeare skips a lot of moms. Mm-hmm. He, he could have a lot more moms or the mom comes in and is like, hello, I'm a mom and then I'm going to leave. <laughs> um, which as a mom, I understand. We, we also do <laughs> like to just drop in and then we have other stuff to do. But, um, <laughs> so he's not wrong. But uh, the, the, the scene between um, Richard and, and his mother, and it is this very sort of parental moment, I, I found absolutely fascinating. So those are my three big uh, pulls into, into Richard. When I directed a production of it with a deaf Richard III, as well as two other deaf actors, the additional thing that I learned is there's a lot of talk about voice and tongues and what you hear and when you're listening and when you're not. So that was something I discovered on, on the path as opposed to something that drew me in. But um, that would be my laundry list of, of introductory stuff that I find interesting about the play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, that's a great segue into our next question. Can you talk about your starting point for that, that production that you directed and where was it performed? Um, sure. Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, so the idea actually, like all good nerds, was a paper <laughs> yes. <I wrote. laughs> in grad school. Um, right on. I, <laughs> um, where I did some research into the disability studies and the disability lens, and I wrote this paper, and I thought, well, what if, what if he's just deaf? No other disability. No little tiny Mark Rylance arm. <laughs> no uh, 
port wine, no crutch, no all the all the things that have that have been done, and a lot of them successfully. I don't mean to mock, um, but but just this, the world that he lives in makes him bad because he is different because of a of a. A, a, of a language issue, he's no different. He has he does not have any different understanding or anything like that. And many years later, the lovely artistic director of Next Stop uh, Theater in uh, Virginia, just outside of DC, contacted me. We had a sort of loose conversation because he was interested in actually Children of a Lesser God. Oh, I love that play. play. Mm-hmm. And it's a lovely play, and it was recently. Uh, done on Broadway with some fantastic people, some of which I've worked with, and they're great and extremely talented. But it's an extremely dated play. It is it is a play of its time. And if that's if that's your bag, then that's great. And I was sort of ta- talking to him about some of that and and the difference between what was happening in deaf culture politics then and now. And he said, "Well, what would be your dream play?" And I said, "You know." I really wanted to do Richard III, but with some deaf people. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, <laughs> I, uh, I got an email from him that said, yeah, we should do that. Why don't you go ahead and do that? Um, so I panicked. <laughs> <laughs> of course. A good response. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> because the other thing all good nerds know is that when you've written a paper about it, you've sort of destroyed it. Yeah. You, you, yeah. No, you've, worked that, you've worked that concept so hard that uh, you wonder, I wondered if there was any play left where I could bring in actors in and allow them to find their own characters. I, I wanted, I want an artistic experience at that point. Um, but I decided to give it a go. And we had a very short rehearsal period, very short. Uh, and I found some just wonderful, fantastic group of actors. Um, and we had a lot of talk about how things were going to be interpreted or not interpreted and people's relationships, not just through character, but through language. And then it, there, then it opened in, if it was February 2014, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm curious, who were the, you said, you said the, the actor who played Richard mm-hmm. was a deaf actor and yes. who were the, um, who did the other uh, deaf actors play? <laughs> play? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> the other deaf actors, there were two other deaf actors. Had I my druthers, there would have been three other <laughs> deaf actors. But we ended up with two. One played uh, a couple of the lords in the kingdom kind okay. of guy, you know. The, mm-hmm. As well as um, Tyrrell. Oh, okay. that's interesting. Yes. So... What that meant, which was one of the things that I loved, is that this sort of climactic scene between Richard and Tyrrell, where they talk about the deaths, I did entirely in sign language with no interpretation. Oh, beautiful. So it was sort of scary. Sure. (laughs) Um, I did did eventually put, um, I put a little underscore, little... Little musical underscore there, and it. I was I was really happy with how well that worked. Um, I was really happy with when the deaf audience came and they were informed that there was an entire section where there was no English. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, guys. They, you gotta do that all the time. <laughs> so, but like maybe some hearing people should just watch the language because the actors were talented yeah um so i love that and then um sandy uh sandra may frank was was uh, also in my production who went on to star in broadway spring awakening oh very much yes sandy's lovely um she did some work with faction um and i worked for gallaudet as a student um and then cast her in the show and I uh, added the silent Princess Elizabeth, um, who made some appearances as with sign language, she had a voice (laughs) because you don't need to have lines that Shakespeare wrote. So it gave a little bit of an extra young female presence 
mm-hmm. which I was interested in in adding. She also played one of the murderers. <gasps> oh, so we also had um, so we also had uh, one murderer who was hearing, and then we had um, Sandy who was deaf, a deaf murderer. Wow, I so um, wish we could have seen this production. I'm like, yeah. I was in Virginia in 2014. Why didn't I just right drive north? Yeah. Uh, Oh man, I wish I'd known about it. Um, in general, wow, what was the yeah? What was the <laughs> response to that? You said you brought in um, deaf audiences, and then obviously there's your regular, you know, theater going mm-hmm. hearing audience. So, what was the response? Uh, overall, there was a really wonderful, um, wonderful response from general audiences as well as um, sort of more the critics and, and things like that were all very positive. Um, there, there were, there, there was maybe one who had some interesting trouble um, understanding Richard as not having any other disability, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Couldn't, couldn't get past that, which is sure, fine. I it guess. Nice things about Whatever. the actors. Um, <laughs> I had a very positive response from the deaf audience. What was really interesting about um, what was really interesting about the deaf audience's response, in my opinion, was that it depended on where they were sitting. Sure. So here's yeah. so here's the challenge that I realized too late. Um, so next up is is very long space, so it's shallow, sort of, mm-hmm. and and very long. When you're doing a production with three deaf people and a bunch of hearing people. And you're trying to figure out the interpretation of, of the text. For me, I got very wrapped up in making sure that the sign language was super clear. Mm-hmm. But what that meant was when the deaf audience came, they needed to have interpreters for anything that Richard wasn't in. Right. So hmm. it meant that it was, it was very difficult to place interpreters in certain ways. So had I had I the opportunity to redo it instead of doing what I think is the standard way of uh, inviting a deaf audience, which is you are responsible for your show, regardless of if it's integrated or not. And then the producer is responsible for bringing interpreters into the theater. I think that I would have tried to integrate the interpreters more. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge, of course, is the expense because it's just incredibly sure. expensive. And I say that as an interpreter as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. They, they, it's, it's, uh, it can get expensive. If there were a couple of deaf pa- patrons who commented, they said, listen, the, the acting is, is great and we love watching Richard, but some of the other stuff we missed sure. because they wanted to see the visual action of what was going on on stage. And because of safety issues, we had to put the interpreters in a particular place. Mm-hmm. So it was a that was a really interesting challenge that I had to um, that I had to sort of own, and mm-hmm. um, which made me much more prepared for the next iteration of of, uh, of an integrated performance, which is good. And also thinking about use of space a little bit more. Mm-hmm. which means that anyone can sit anywhere and have the same experience. And oh, that's, good. I mean, that's impossible for hearing people. I mean, we've all been to the theater where it's, oh, I'm sitting behind this post because. Right. Yeah. Right. So often we don't all have the same experience depending on where you're sitting. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff with that, but, um, but overall it's the only time to my knowledge that uh, a deaf actor has had, that kind of lead role. We used some creative ideas about how he was being voiced. Mm-hmm. So um, there were mirrors. There were there were mirrors on on the set. It was sort of a stately home kind of thing, rundown stately home um, with mirrors. And uh, Richard initially speaks to himself in the mirror. And then the light comes up and the actor that is providing his voice is his reflection. Oh, I yeah. love that. <laughs> so there was a second actor, just to make sure I'm following. There was Yes. So, okay. so so Richard would sign. Yeah. Particularly soliloquy. So this is soliloquies. Right. 
he would Richard did all the signing and uh and then another actor I, I started calling them shadows uh-huh sure appeared behind the mirror and was his voice the more cocky Richard got the voice the shadow had the ability to leave the mirror and come out on stage and they could interact Oh, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that sounds so cool. Um, also, oh, I man. should add that the actor that voiced for Richard was Richmond. So, <gasps> so then. <gasps> thematic so, doubling going on. That's awesome. Yeah. So it also really gave a lot of, I, I really like this idea that when Richard looked at himself in the mirror, he saw Richmond. He saw a hero. Oh, he saw fantastic. the ultimate guy. Yeah, because of course he does, right? right? That's yeah. Oh man. So and then and when it all goes wrong, the those same mirrors are where the ghosts appear because then he he has no control over himself. His conscience takes over, um, and so the ghosts come into the mirror instead of himself. So Whoa. he loses himself completely. That's so um, cool. Yeah, it was I was I was particularly proud of some of those moments. They worked just really beautifully. Um, but I, I should say that Buckingham was his uh, court interpreter, his society interpreter. Oh. So when he was in court amongst the people, Buckingham took on a role of interpreter. When when Buckingham hit the road, so to speak, <laughs> was shown the door. Yeah. yeah. So there was a build up to uh, Richard losing trust in Buckingham, and I did a little a little character shuffling uh and catesby really becomes becomes the guy in part because catesby was a better signer mm. oh okay so um he became even though he was sort of more of a dirtbag so now the only p people that richard really communicates well with are sort of catesby tyrol murderer so That's was there such a... sorry go ahead Aubrey. oh no i um <laughs> I'm, I'm just so curious now about about the the other hearing actors in the cast and like mm -hmm. was there um did everybody learn a little bit of asl or was or did you like intentionally make sure that some actors just didn't know and and maybe their characters didn't seem to care and maybe that was part of richard's alienation mm -hmm. like how how did that work out um so I didn't encourage anyone to not learn sign language. <laughs> okay. Because <Good>. um, <laughs> because I want because I want the I wanted the actors to create an ensemble. Sure. So if anything, um, I tried to provide materials whereby they could have a beer if they wanted. Like, hey everybody, let's go to the bar and and hang out. That's the kind of relationship you want. Particularly in Richard, which is so like, <laughs> you could leave yeah, a lot of rehearsals. Yeah. You could leave a lot of rehearsals being like, oh my god, the world. So I wanted everybody to be able to communicate, um, and also because that you want your actors to make certain choices, and they should be able to to go, hey, what if we do? What if I try this the next time? Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't encourage anyone to not sign. Mm -hmm. I did choose characters that did not sign, right? Okay. So um, Clarence, bless him. <laughs> um, he was mostly too drunk to make sense so he was the guy right he was the guy that would wave his arms around and then be like mm. what did you just say dude mm -hmm. um wow. sure so would sort of do key key signs so he could be followed and give cues <laughs> honestly sure. um and then um uh, hastings was the asshole like hastings was the guy who just sort of talked real loud and slow. Oh, mm -hmm. uh-huh, um, sure. And then there were, you know, his mother, obviously the Duchess did not sign at all, specifically would tuck her behind her back and compare mm -hmm. him to read lips. Um, so I, so I tried to hit on all of those things that someone would have to go through in their everyday life when all they want to do is ask someone how their day is or you know, yeah. talk to their mother. So I, I did make choices for each of the characters, but I didn't, in, but I encouraged all the actors to have the ability to, to communicate. Sure. Um, I would say that the, the actor playing Catesby picked it up pretty quick. And then we had 
extra rehearsals for both Buckingham and Catesby to make sure everybody was communicating mm-hmm. clearly. Mm-hmm. Good. That's awesome. Um, Lindsay, I mm-hmm. wonder if you could talk briefly or maybe not so briefly about... <laughs> I haven't um, talked briefly yet, I don't think. Sorry. Girl, no, we don't do brief here. <laughs> we just Great. sort of wax poetic. Um, but about the the scene, the wooing scene between mm-hmm. Richard and Lady Anne and what oh God, that yeah. looked like and how mm-hmm. you approached it and crafted it and what you found um, productive or tense in, in that scene in this particular mm-hmm. production. Sure. So... There were a couple of really interesting challenges. <laughs> some were text-based and some were actor-based. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. So obviously this is one of, I personally find this one of the most challenging, problematic scenes. Yes. In Agreed. All <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. It's, it's icky. so icky. <laughs> it's super, it's super gross. And, and it just, it, it, that turn is like, girl, mm-hmm. like, and you want to be, and you want to get mad at yeah. her, yeah. but I, I am tangentially, I remember, re- okay, sorry, we've hit tangent, the tangent Good. part of our show. We love it. We love um, tangents. <laughs> I remember just trying to explain this scene to a friend of mine who knows nothing about Shakespeare, and I read that part of it, and she said... I think you skipped something. She, she legit was like, did you forget a page? Is there, cause how, cause what just happened? Didn't she just hate him? Wasn't he like a toad? And I was like, yes, correct. Um, somehow all those beautiful rhetorical devices are not doing it for me when it, when it comes to that change. So now mm-hmm. so from the top, just working through it and trying to find what their moment was. Because if I can't get it directly from the text, because I have the oogies, then I need, technical term, then I need to figure out what that is for the actors that I'm working with. What is the reason that this Anne decides that this Richard is worth her time? Um, So we had to, we had to sort of figure some of that out. Some of that, which was really interesting. So one of, which made one of the other problems help in a way was the actress that was playing Lady Anne was I think she had just started her interpreter training as a sign language interpreter so she knew sign language and so she just wanted to sign back okay and I I initially said no I too much right right if Mm -hmm. if if they're just if if they're just only using sign language this whole this whole time then a how the heck am I going to interpret that please help me out and on a technical level who is doing the voicing for that right speaking and signing is a lot and b the addition of essentially the addition of rhetorical gesture that is also textual at that point I think is is too much information I think it's I think it it sways things too much So Mm -hmm. I tried to take the sign language away from her. But what I ended up doing was putting it back in at the end. And so the acceptance of Richard also came from, uh, also showed as, now I'm going to communicate with you in your language. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. So, So it provided a moment of connection and it wasn't fluent Mm-hmm. But it was, we've known each other a long time, obviously. Mm-hmm. I have some connection to you. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you this, li- I'm going to give you this information. I'm going to give you this line. I'm going to tell you how I feel in, in your language, because I want to be clear. And that when, when that came up at rehearsal, she just did it spontaneously. When that came up in rehearsal and the actor, the actor was like, what just happened? What just happened? Did she just, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go. Oh, I'm going to go. But yeah, he actually, it forced him to take this breath that mm-hmm. I found really interesting. And I went, oh, okay. Well, that's why, that's how this works. Mm. So in, so in some ways, one of my problems solved my problem. Um, the other thing that, that I had to do with this particular scene was add Buckingham because mm-hmm. he needed an interpreter. 
Sure. He needed his uh-huh. interpreter with him. Right, yeah. Now, our, our Buckingham was um, a very tall, uh, sort of standard, good-looking gentleman. <laughs> uh, he was a big dude. Like, that's the, <laughs> in, the, uh-huh. in the lingo. So now, here's a big guy who not only is interpreting, but is also going to be able to stop her from leaving her room. Mm-hmm back up Richard when he wants to do something dramatic. If he's going to insult her and she tries to leave, here's someone who can stop her. Here's someone who can hold her still. Wow. Um, so that added a really, a really interesting dynamic, which was also great because when um, a deaf person tries to stab himself in the heart, he still needs his hands Tell them oh. he's going to stab himself in the heart. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so did so, Buckingham just kind of talk through that and the Richard held the dagger the way he needed to? Or like, no. how did that work? We put the sword, he took Buckingham's sword, put it on the floor, and put his chin on it. Oh. His throat. His throat and then signed oh, around it. Oh, whoa. Oh. I wow. Yeah, that's, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that visual. Whoa. Yeah. Such an intense awesome. picture. Well, yeah. yeah, which which it became so uh, the fa- the communication issue in that moment became so fraught. Mm-hmm. And the determination to just get her. Yeah. That the audience so went with him. Wow. Yeah. The, when he turned around to the audience and was like, what? Look, at, oh, I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. Almost every night, the audience was like, oh, <laughs> let out this audible, oh, damn, I forgot that was the next part. <laughs> <laughs> they forgot oh. it was such a shit for a moment. Right. Because wow. it was just that's, so fraught, but you know, genius. there was so much energy happening. It was, it was great. I mean, it's you know, it's a great combination of working with te- the talented actors that you have and finding out what their stuff is and figuring out your way through the challenges in a way that still serves the text. Well, I know that that's what drove us to like gush about the work we saw you do at the Black Forest Conference mm-hmm. in the first place was that I personally had never seen signing the way that you were doing it in the conference, which I assume was how it was done, or at least similar to how it was done in, in this production you're talking about, mm-hmm. that it was just so, um, it was so, there was this just extra layer of drama because it's, it is, it's a visual medium, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, I'm, I'm really just trying to wrap my head around the intensity of that moment. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, and, 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 and I, you know, I had a great fight choreographer who was like, how do I, what are we gonna, <laughs> what's right. gonna, Hey, you know what we should do? We should just balance the Zord on his, th- you know, on his chest <laughs> or on his throat. And Ethan, bless his heart, who played Richard was like, yep, let's do it. It's not sharp, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like just oh, checking. <laughs> I'm cool, not going to die. Cool. It's proud. I'm on board. Wow. Yeah. Wow. How did that um how did that work with the battle scenes later? Speaking of having to hold a, a weapon and yeah. and talk at the same time. Right, right. How did that work? So the big battle scenes are really just chaos and despair. So it's not hard to send a bunch of people running around stage <laughs> yelling and that's true. And doing stuff. So that was um that was less of a problem. And then I did a um I did sort of an assassination, a version of an assassination game where people are, they're in in their encampment and the the sort of SEAL team (laughs) comes in and takes (laughs) them all out. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Amazing. I needed to to figure out how to kill some people in a, in a, in a really quick way. (laughs) I ran out of, ran out of stuff at that point. Um, I was like, can we just bring in a team and not? <laughs> and again, excellent fight choreographer. Yup, I can totally do that. Great. And the only, and I will say that uh, Richard used his voice one time mm-hmm. with a horse, a horse. 
and king Ooh. and force. So at the bottom, the bottom, no one's listened to him this whole time. And the one time that he tries to oh. speak out to be heard. Oh, oh that kills me. Nothing. Oh, I love yeah. it so much. <laughs> oh, good. Wow. I mean, this sounds like, so I have a lot of feelings about this character and this play and mm -hmm. both of them, all of them are kind of just like, eh. And like it's not great and I don't really get it but this production the more you talk about it sounds like a Richard that I could get on board with and then let myself be betrayed by mm -hmm. which I think is the key right to Richard yeah. I mean it's the key to all of the sort of duplicitous antagonists that are in the protagonist role right like right you have to you have to let yourself feel something so that mm -hmm. you can be hurt and I've never, I've never found a production or a Richard that has been able mm -hmm. to do that for me. Oh, what I wouldn't give to see this. <laughs> Why is time travel not a thing? Uh, I don't, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was really, uh, I was really pleased with it. I mean, as always, you're never as pleased as you want to be. Right. There's always, you sure. know, you get through the show and you're like, oh, I should have done that one thing different right. with this other yeah. thing um but in general but i was um i was very pleased with it and uh, i got a lot of great feedback but i i do think that i think the disability perspective is a problem yeah mm -hmm. i think it's the first it's the lens that everybody opens with my, my, myself included because that's the one that, that that comes first in every book in every mm -hmm. essay in every class well, yeah. Richard and Richard, it's why, in some ways, I was super disappointed that they found him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was, and they found him right around the production, the production time. Right? Oh, yeah. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. there's all this talk about, yep, scoliosis, yep, mm -hmm. curvature of the spine. That's all. Just, just a curvature of the spine. That's all. And I, I think I actually wrote about it in, in my director's notes where I, I said, that's great. Shakespeare didn't care it, when you're using it as, but when you're using it as a symbol, then it starts to become a problem mm -hmm. because what yeah. happens is you start to feel, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I, I can speak for myself. The, the menace, the menace for me <laughs> with various productions was it became so much about what kind of disabilities shall Richard have today. Right. Yeah. And yet whatever that disability was, didn't change the tenor or approach or result of the production. Mm -hmm. Okay, you wanna, you know, I mean, maybe it was, maybe he, it got, he got cooler weapons. I remember there was one where it was, he, there was a specific arm problem. And so he had the super cool sword hand <laughs> double bladed and I was like oh, all right that's cool but but it didn't come from anything in the play which means it's not really going to help you sure uh, I don't think mm -hmm. so what I was trying to do was say here's here's a particular issue that is only defined as a disability by everyone else mm -hmm. the deaf community refers to themselves as a culture and a linguistic minority so now what happens when you all say disability and the character says, not really, I, I can still, I can fight your wars. I can do your things. I can marry your women. I just speak a different language than you. You hang out with those French guys all the time and no one likes them. They're French. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever likes the French, but here I am with this language and it makes me less than you. So there's no other choice but to kill you all. <laughs> but you also, it's also a good serial killer movie. But, but, you, <laughs> but it has this really interesting effect on the audience as well, right? Because there's mm -hmm. still this thing out in the world where people see sign language and go, it's so pretty. And it is, but your brain also sort of channels it as, but not English. Mm -hmm. Sure. But not a legitimate language. And so I like this idea of somebody who who almost wields it as a weapon, but but I can certainly un, uh, but I can certainly understand meh in, in some ways 
in that we need to really move past Richard has a disability. Disability means bad. Isn't that interesting? I, I think we need to move on to whatever, whatever that next that next level of, of close read or study is. Yeah, I think in some ways the women could do that if we could shift perspective to some of the women in the play. And this idea of they know what's going on. Every scene he has with a woman, they are on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they are not taking any shit. So they can't get anywhere. Does that mean being a woman is a disability? Ooh. So I would watch that production. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, I, I'm interested in I, I'm interested in a, a in flipping that lens or doing doing something with it. Mm-hmm. To, to, because I there's a lot in that play I think that is cool. So to sort of uh, take us towards I think the the wrapping up of this conversation um mm-hmm. you know Aubrey and I have been lucky enough to see your interpretive work at the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton I know you've done mm-hmm. quite a bit of work with them doing you know interpretation for um performances as well as lectures and events and I wonder if you can take us through sort of how you approach moving Shakespeare into ASL and and sort of the the pitfalls and benefits and just what that process is right because mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware ASL doesn't have iambic pentameter mm-hmm. um and how so how do you how how do you do what you do <laughs> I suppose is yeah. the question it's a good question um solid so it is it is true uh ASL does not have iambic pentameter but uh, ASL does have line. It, mm-hmm. it does have rhythm. Mm-hmm. So what I'm after is a parallel experience. Uh, I should also clarify that there are two different ways to talk about this. Mm-hmm. There is what you are talking about working with the shows at the American Shakespeare Center mm-hmm. um, or the conference or, or various other um, performances, which is interpreting for a particular performance at a particular time. And then there is translation. Right. Which would be documenting a text in, in sort of, for lack of a better word, neutral space, which is something that I am hoping to work on uh, in the next couple of years to, to do an actual translation in sign language uh, of, a, of a full text. I'm hopeful. That's so exciting. Um, <laughs> so when I interpret a performance, I am not only using the text. I'm also interpreting the performance of the actor. So I, for me, I always start with seeing the performance sure. and taking notes on how the actor is playing the character. Because if, if Bottom is huge and super dramatic and trilling his R's and doing big arms, then I'm going to make sign choices with big arms. And bottom is, you know, smoking hand-rolled cigarettes and being an egotistical <laughs> dude with an accent, then, um, then I'm going to make choices that are um, smaller and in the snobbier space <laughs> Sure. Um, when, when I do that. So I start with taking notes on the actors' performances, taking notes of the gestures that they're using as part of the character, sometimes even some of the actor quirks. Um, one of the things I loved uh, love at, about working with the American Shakespeare Center is that for such a, it's it was such a stable crew for such a long time yeah. that I knew the actors really well. So I could go, oh yeah, okay, I know I know I know what James Keegan is going to do with this. I know what John Harrell is going to do with this. So that was really helpful to me for some of the choices that that I made because I had a shorthand um, with some of them. Mm-hmm. So once I've seen it, then uh, I go back to the text and I, I make sure that I demarcate which is verse and which is prose because the prose is going to come much faster. Mm-hmm. Often, often the prose is going to come much faster so I can make some faster choices about how I want to express that. But it also means, and I, and I work with a team, particularly on, on Shakespeare plays, 
that my team and I can make choices where we can share a sign or, or pass a sign back and forth, which provides the same sense of um, alliteration, or if there's a particular joke that's being made, we can make the same joke or the same kind of joke so that everyone's laughing at the same time. I also, well, let me, let me back up. So once the pro, so I do some of that with the pros and then I look at the verse. I do go through and look at the pentameter. I'm a bit of a meter whore. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> Join Same. the club, sister. <laughs> so I, I just find it really helpful in finding operative words and making sure that, um, that, that it all makes sense to me and I can picture it. And then I try to find the parallel um, rhetorical device. Mm. So I will often start with the rhetorical device when it comes to setting down a translation, because I know that if there's a lot of antithesis in a particular speech, that I can make decisions about how I show that um, either from hand to hand or by turning my shoulders back and forth, or sometimes by looking up and by looking down. But depending on how I wanna use my space, maybe I use all three and, it, and I use them at different times throughout the piece in order to maintain that same um, that same kind of experience throughout the entire speech. So I will go through that uh, and, and consider things from, from the rhetorical point of view. Um, I will go back and, and check my meter to make sure I haven't done something stupid. I spend some extra time on jokes. Jokes are hard. Um, I also spend extra time on going blue. Uh, all those fun locker room jokes that Romeo and Benvolio and Mercutio make uh, become super crazy dirty or have the potential to be super crazy dirty. I bet. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so without, no, I, I, I'm not going to boulderize it. Like I'm, I, I'm, I'm not interested in censoring, uh, in censoring things, but the performance tells me in some ways, how dirty I need to be. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a kajillion Romeo and Juliet's at this point. And sometimes the boys are very much broing down and being just filthy. And that's, then I'm gonna roll with that. Then, then there's gonna be a lot of signs that are um, uh, penis-like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like it's a podcast I can't show you. Uh, you'll have to imagine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> downside of downside. And sometimes they're they're a little more vague. Sometimes they're a little more delicate with some of their jokes. And sometimes they're a little more wink wink. Wink wink, nudge nudge, you know what I mean? Sure. They, so <laughs> that which means I need to play with the signs in that way. I also go through the script for things that people should be looking the stage for for lovey kissy moments, for fighty fighty moments, for a visual joke. And I will try to choose my signs uh, and my team uh, as well for how we go back and forth to find momentum to shift our body and our focus to the stage at a particular moment. I also mark the script because it means I have to memorize that part because I have to be faster. I can't wait to hear what they're saying. I have to know what's coming next in order to get it out, in order to make sure that everyone sees that visual joke at the same time. I will, if I get stuck, I will sometimes go look at art. I will try to find some visual medium to help support some of my sign choices. Um, I always ask my friends from the deaf community for help. I always make sure that whatever I create a particular um, speech that I think is the bee's knees and <laughs> I will show it to someone and go, that makes sense, right? You understand what I'm doing there? Because <laughs> um, I never want to take a language that, you know, isn't mine and assume right. that everything I'm doing right, is great. Yeah. Of course. And audience go, oh, not so much. And the other thing, of course, is that I need to be able to take all the work that I've done and throw it out if necessary. <laughs> Um, if there's an error in the show, if someone skips four pages, right? Um, yeah. If yeah. one of the actors comes down and decides that I'm Rosalind, hmm. 
sure. has happened on occasion. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> or decides they want to interact with me. I, I enjoy it. Some interpreters, not so much. Um, but I, I enjoy it. And sometimes I will prepare a really fantastic, high-level, mamma-jamma interpretation and for a student matinee, and the students come, and they're eight. Oh, boy. Yeah. So yeah. now, Oof. right. So now I need to make some decisions about what's important for that audience. Some of the work that I'm doing now or trying to do <laughs> is about what happens when there's an interpreter in the space, um, which is a thing that people don't really talk about because they like to pretend the interpreter isn't there. Mm -hmm. Right now, that's the only answer. Don't worry, you'll get used to them. Your eye mm -hmm. will just naturally move away. But that's not true. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Definitely not true. It's arresting to watch. So, and sometimes helpful. I've had many mm, yeah. people tell me that they understand the lines better yes. having had an interpreter there. Yes. That somehow it's more clear in certain ways, um, which I love. That's a, that's a huge compliment to me. And, but also I understand my job. And if deaf patrons come to the theater and they say, that's a really good interpretation, I have not done my job. I need people to leave the theater and say, that was a really good show. Sure. In the same way, if the show is terrible, I can't fix it. Right. <laughs> I have done some shows that are bad. <laughs> bad. <laughs> and I can't, I can't make a magical choice if the performance that that actor is giving is not all that it could be. So I have a very, uh, a very unique role that influences what happens to my interpretation in the space in real time. So an, an interpreter is the audience, is a narrator, and is a performer simultaneously and has to be able to switch those hats very, very quickly or wear two at a time. And that's what a, a good interpreter does because it makes them not the furniture and not an actor and not the audience, but mm -hmm. of all of them. Uh, but there's not a lot of research into sort of what that does to the space um, yeah. and what that does to the audience perception and reception of, of what's happening. I guess I would probably be it another like hour or so if we wanted to really <laughs> dig into translation as on top oh, of the yeah, interpretation it's, but girl, I'm it's so, almost I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm so curious okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> we've been going for an hour let me just add one thing and so maybe okay. it'll maybe it'll help um okay. so I am I'm writing a book on this which ideally will be done and out next year amazing okay awesome. Yeah, well, right. that's that's great because I was the next question I was supposed to ask you is, <laughs> what are you working on right now? Uh, and also, how can our listeners find out more about you or go to see your work either as an interpret an interpreter or see mm -hmm. plays that you've directed or you know, do you have a social media presence? Like, how can we find I do. you? you know? I do. Oh wow, all the biggies. So right now, yes, I have this. I have this book, and I'm only a little behind, um, <laughs> but I feel like that's normal. That's yes, totally fine. fine. Uh, Production-wise, I'm working on um, Henry V with Faction of Fools. Awesome. Which is going to be a super fun production. It's Henry and five actors. That's Henry V. Mm. And um, it's Comedia dell'arte. Ooh. So it's very okay. much about uh, a small like band of actors who really are forcing the audience to let their imaginary forces work. And as an interpreter, um, we're trying something called semi-integrated interpreting, which is a big thing right now in the UK. Mm. Um, I have been visiting periodically with the Globe and working with their access um, manager and department on their recent projects with British Sign Language um, and providing uh, synopses for their audience. Some of them are really cool. And they just released them now. So you should totally look, <gasps> particularly at the Macbeth yes. one. It's super cool synopsis in British Sign Language. And uh, while I was there, one of the things they introduced me to is this idea of how we were talking, how the interpreter has all these different roles. So they said, well, for certain productions, we use one interpreter. 
the Brits usually use one, which I think is a little crazy, but for certain <laughs> productions, they use one interpreter who is not a character, but is incorporated into the action, but also has the right to not be in the action. So it's a kind of shadow interpreting, but kind of not. Mm. So um, so when I came came back after my most recent workshop with them, I thought, well, a five plus one <laughs> Henry V seems like the right size and good show to try this with. So mm. we're trying the semi-integrated um, single interpreter, and I wouldn't ask any schmuck to do it but me. I'm the only <laughs> schmuck around. So, which means I'll be right in the action. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be an interesting and successful experiment. Um, so that is the project for the fall, um, cool. along with the writing and um, my my kids. <laughs> they take a lot of time. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, uh, so you can find me. I have a website that is only slightly out of date. <laughs> that that is my name uh, with my middle initial, uh, lindsaydsnyder.com. Um, I'm much more interesting on Twitter. I can vouch for that. You're so great on you Twitter. you can find me there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I recently joined Instagram um, as, as Shakespeare Scholar Mom because that was the nerdiest name I could think of. I love um, it. So you'll see pictures of random things, and hopefully someday there'll be some stuff that has to do with Shakespeare. But it's mostly oatmeal and my kids and walking to work. <laughs> awesome. Good. <laughs> um, good. What did you say your Twitter handle was? It's a super weird handle, as I recall, because I had to put an underscore in it. So it is Lindsay, L-I-N-Z underscore PhD. Cool. Because I, I suspect after this conversation, after people listen to this episode, they're going to want to follow you on Twitter yeah. at the very least. So Probably. to keep up with what you're doing. They are welcome to read my nonsense. I love to have them. <laughs> Uh, so the results are in for our uh, Prospero slash Lear matchup last week and also the Malfi brothers versus Lorenzo and Balthazar for Spanish tragedy. In a landslide, we had Lear was, was the winner of his matchup and also the brothers Malfi in their matchup. Um, so they're moving forward to the next round of the dick bracket. So this week we are pairing Livia from Women Beware Women against Chiron and Demetrius from Titus Andronicus. Uh, and also... Right? That guy says it all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Alice, um, Alice Faversham from Arden of Faversham versus Margaret of Anjou from the Henry VI plays and also Richard III. Right. So if you haven't gathered, Lindsay, the dick bracket is to determine who in the entire early modern canon is the biggest dick mm -hmm. douchebag yeah. ever. So, wow. It's a lot yeah. of contenders. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, there are so many. You don't even know. We, we uh, got a lot. We're trying to narrow it down. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in a in a quick and dirty minute, uh, Livia from Women to Wear Women um, panders her neighbor to the Duke. She sort of orchestrates the the rape of this young woman um she lies to her brother and her niece so that they enter an incestuous relationship uh and then she is the author of her own destruction and responsible for the the final stage picture that's got like eight dead bodies on the stage but the the orchestrating the rape of a young woman and also forcing well not forcing but tricking her niece into an incestuous relationship that's what got her a place on the dick bracket mm -hmm. pretty much the same with chiron and demetrius they uh rape and then mutilate uh young lavinia in titus andronicus um and they don't seem to feel a damn thing about it uh, and they commit nope. other heinous acts uh, you know, other battles and whatever. Uh, they're just a couple of murderous fuckers. Um, so the the reason we put these two up against each other is because they both uh, enact violence uh, on on women. Um, so do you are you leaning in a particular direction, Lindsay? Do you feel like one of them is a bigger dick than the other? That's a that's a that's a bracket, man. It's, it's hard. hard. Right? It's real hard. That's a hard yeah. one. That's a hard one. I mean. Yeah. My my first impulse were Kyron and Demetrius. I'm not mm -hmm. gonna lie. The planning of it, the fact that somehow they listened to their bizarro mother, right? <laughs> yeah. For all of it. 
and the obvious the mutilation and and all uh, yeah is gross yeah that yeah, was my fir- that was my first thought so if i'm going first thought that's sure. fine yeah, I'm, that's fine. I mean, also, I'm going with the boys. You don't have I to mean, solve this. Yeah, yeah no, no, we can't I, either. That's why we put it out to Twitter on Twitter yeah. polls and let that, the people decide. That makes that makes more sense. Yeah, because yeah. it's tough. Um, we can't we can't do it on our own. <laughs> so then we've got Alice Faversham, uh, mm. who spends the entire play coming up with exceedingly uh, far fetched ways of murdering her husband. Uh, because she wants to get with her side piece, Mosby. And finally, when the poisoned porridge and the poisoned uh, painting doesn't work, because science, uh, she just fucking stabs him over his dinner. Mm. It's gnarly. Right. So she that's that's Alice Arden for you. Right. She's right. up against Margaret. Margaret of Anjou, who gets four plays uh, in which to enact all of her destruction. Um, I mean, most notably, you know, she mows down a bunch of people in the first three Henry sixes. Um, two. But two she's Henry barely six- in, she's okay, barely in the okay, first okay, part. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. She's <laughs> one scene. She has one scene with Suffolk. Okay, fine. But most notably, you know, she kills young baby Rutland, um, the youngest York yeah. brother and like wipes his that kid's blood on uh, Richard of York, uh, his dad's face, and she taunts him about it. Um, so she's she's a violent lady who kind of mows down everybody who gets in her way uh, and then sticks around for Richard III to make sure that Richard Gloucester really, really gets his just desserts by the end, and she just kind of tortures everybody. So these two powerhouse ladies against each other, any, any inclinations? Now, to be fair, Margaret does have multiple plays where Alice Faversham only has the one, but still. I know. I sort of like Margaret. I know mm. that's bad. I know, right? No, as a Lancastrian, I, I too, <laughs> I enjoy I her. I know that's inappropriate. And, and you know, not to say I enjoy watching her do do the things, but you can, <laughs> here's, here's the political, right? You yeah. can feel her oppression. Like you can, sure. you, you can yeah. feel her being like, uh, ain't no ladies doing anything. So guess what, boys? Right. It's time. And, you know, I also have great respect for someone who wants to get out of their domestic situation. <laughs> right? If, if, if it's not in their favor. But maybe um, orchestrating so maybe a, think... a poison painting is not the way to go. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's fair. <laughs> fair point. Fair it's point. not how well, science the crazy works. Is, the crazy is what makes it fun. I know. I yeah. love this play so much. The I love it so much. is what makes it fun. It's so out there. Yeah. It's so out there. But I, there is something truthful though about someone who sits in their room at night and goes, you know, that thing, that thing that he does when mm-hmm. he uses my toothbrush, mm-hmm. I could poison my toothbrush, <laughs> and then it will be. So there is an element of the 2 a.m. Like, okay, it could have been a portrait. What do I know? <laughs> Amazing. Have I have I killed it now? Is it dead? It's late. No, I, you're late. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It really humanizes our uh, our lady dicks in the dick bracket. Was it right? I think that's the problem. I think it can't be a dick bracket because I'm sort of I'm like ladies. I'm on. I'm on your side. Yeah. I'm on your side, ladies. It's real. That struggle is very real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially now. Oh my God! Tell me about it. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. And thank you so much to Lindsay for joining us. It's been such oh a treat. Gosh. It's been so great. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for volunteering your time. We really, really appreciate you sticking around and, and telling us everything about everything. Just <laughs> my pleasure. I, I had a great time. Thank Come you. back anytime. Anytime. Uh, happy to. You know I love talking. <laughs> um well hurly burly shakers, uh tune in next week for the Merry Wives of Windsor 101. And uh that's it. Whamlet out. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell all your friends. Rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. 
Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla, which is H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. Put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes Burning up my rubber, going nine to five I don't get to where I'm going, I think I might die I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet with no help from anyone because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. Have a kid, have a family, gonna marry me the first woman I see. Oh, all right. Um, that was a lot. Well, it, yes, but all so good and and chewy. So I don't know that that's yeah. a good word, but it's my my brain is chewing on it. 